Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today from the Ridge Line up in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, from the Ant Hill, the Ant's Nest, or TSPN, whatever we're eventually going to call it. Got to get around to putting up that that uh, that poll in the uh, in the forums and let you guys vote on what the official name of the new headquarters is. But yet another show from the new headquarters up here in Hot Springs Village. It is Friday. It is uh, April the twenty second, two thousand eleven. And since it's Friday, you know what that means. That means it's your day. This is the time for your calls to eight six six sixty five think. Again, that number to call into the show is eight six six sixty five think. Before I do the housekeeping today, though, I have something I have to do, and I don't like to beat up on any of you guys or anything, but I keep telling you guys, don't call me from windstorms, don't call me from the back of motorcycles, and please speak loudly and clearly into the phone. So I'm going to give you an example right now of a call I can't use. So I just want you to listen to this, and I want you to put yourself in my position, and this is me trying to help you because you called to me with a question. Listen to this. All right, so clearly there's no way I can help this person, and there were quite a few people that called today like this. There were also people that called in that whispered into the microphone that I could barely hear. I can only amplify you so much, so... What I need you guys to do when you t- pick your phone up and you mash those numbers, I need to know you to know why you're calling. I need you to be quick and direct and to the point and get your question out as first. I mean, it's the best way to do this uh, to get on the air. Ask your question, then give me your background information, just like we do in the emails. Call me from a quiet location when you have time to think and get your question out. That will likely get you on the air. People that take a minute before they get to their question, don't get on the air. People that call like the last thing you just heard, obviously I can't put you on the air. People that I can't hear, don't get on the air. There's some calls that even I, I could listen really hard today and I could understand what you were asking, but your call wasn't usable because you're not following that format. Please do that for me. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I'm trying to help you help me get your questions on the air. Because there's a lot less calls and emails, and odds are, if you call with a clear, concise call, I'm going to get you on the air. Okay, that's public service announcement for today. Let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Let's start out with taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk about all this really cool stuff to grow, Orach and New Zealand spin and kale and all these things that you generally don't go down to Kroger or Publix or uh, Albertsons or whatever and see Tom Thumb, see those on the shelf there. And then you grow all this stuff and it looks really great and you go, what do I do with it? Well, Chef Keith will help you put those into great nutritional dishes and teach you how to cook with seasonal foods and cook with organic foods and really make your food taste great. If you're going to put all that effort into growing your food, learning how to cook it and prepare it in a very, very cool way is a great thing to add to it. You can find out a lot more about that at HarvestEating.com. Again, that's Chef Keith Snow. And Keith has promised to come back on the air with us next month to talk about cooking with your preps. And I think he's got some really cool ideas for that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Emergency Essentials, located at BePrepared.com. Again, I don't know how they snagged that domain without the Boy Scouts getting it first, but that's certainly what they do. They help you be prepared for anything that may come your way. Really, really specializing in long-term food storage. One of the biggest selections of brands and, and options available. Great food uh, storage calculators as well. Lots of information on their website. Again, check them out at BePrepared.com. And remember, the best way to find any of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Look in the right-hand margin. You'll see the banners of all our sponsors. Clicking there will make sure you're dealing, in fact, with the correct Survival Podcast sponsor, not somebody that sounds like them or a brand pirate. All right, next up, I want to remind you, connect with us, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I've been doing a lot on Facebook this week with the deck construction around the house, setting up the new office, stuff like that. It's fun. Get involved. Uh, be part of it. I got an email from a guy today. It wasn't really an email. It was a trouble ticket submitted through the MSB, right? 
I don't use Facebook. I don't do this. I don't know what I I I want to give you feedback, but they're 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 tracking everything. My response was one: stop being paranoid. Two: it's called email. If you need to get something to me, folks, I give my email address out all the time. It is my re- real email. It's not screened. It's Jack at the Survival So if you don't like those other means, you can email me. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of videos that are available nowhere else. You get discounts to over 25 vendors. And I'm keeping on building the value of the MSB every day. It pays itself back. It's got a great return of investment for you. And you're actually supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hi, Jack. Uh, This is Aaron calling from Toronto, Canada. Uh, we love your show up here, listen to it all the time, and uh, definitely helping me become more of a systematic planner in person. i got two quick questions for you. One, uh, as a modern-day survivalist and or prepper, what would you recommend doing um, for a short vacation at an all-inclusive resort in the Caribbean? Uh, say like Dominican Republic, thinking uh, you know self-defense, preparation for natural disasters, or anything else that could happen down there. Uh, second question would be one for uh, to help uh, my girlfriend. Actually, what would you recommend for a small girl of you know five two and a hundred hundred and so pounds um, for self defense? Uh, you know, nothing too crazy, nothing gun operated, because obviously we're in Canada. We can own guns, but we can't use them. Uh, so something on hand to hand self defense from uh, you know stopping a of course, usually a male attacker. Uh, any help there would be great. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. So here's the interesting thing. I'm pretty much going to recommend the same answer to both of your questions. Um, let's talk. start with traveling to a place like the Caribbean or something like that. Obviously, you're not going to have uh, a weapon strapped on you, and obviously you're dealing with the same problem uh, in, in Canada because, as you said, you can own a gun but not use it, which I find to be absolutely retarded, and I sure wish uh, the, fo- the folks up there in Canada would maybe go and make some changes in your government to get your daggone rights back, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So the two best things I can recommend that you carry with you that you can take to a place like the Dominican Republic with, with probably little trouble is pepper spray and a cubiton. And uh, cubiton is going to be no problem at all. I don't know about pepper spray and traveling and can you pack it in your locked luggage or, or what have you. You're going to have to research that, but I, I don't think it's a real problem. And in most in- instances, I would say when you get on the ground where you're traveling to go pick some up, I don't know if you can buy that down there. You also need, always when you're traveling to a foreign country, you need to check with local laws. But that would be the two big things that I would carry is, again, a cubiton uh, and pepper spray. And for your for your uh, your significant other there, when she's out and about, I would definitely recommend pepper spray as the primary means of self-defense. I want to talk about a couple different things here with this one. Number one with the pepper spray. Um, I, I hear stories all the time, well, it doesn't work on a drugged up. Shut up. The next person that tells me that, I'm just going to say, stop talking, shut up. I'm so tired of hearing that. You get one case out of 10,000 where that happens. And I'm telling you, I've said this before, I know a real story of a guy, and this was a good guy, actually, that was shot twice, point-blank range in the chest with a 357 Magnum, punched the guy that shot him in the face, took the gun away from him, beat him damn near half to death with it, kind of wish he would have finished the job, got in his vehicle and drove himself to the hospital. All right, so does that mean 357 Magnums at point-blank range into the chest aren't effective? So you got to let go of stuff like that. And you also have to remember this. Most of the stories of use of pepper spray and resistance of the person it's sprayed on come from law enforcement because they're the ones that have to deal with people acting like assholes every single day of their life. When they spray somebody, you have to understand the law enforcement officer's intent at that point is to subdue the person so they can be taken into custody. Cops don't spray people and then run away from them. Civilians, that's exactly what you should be doing. You're not there to make a citizen's arrest. If your life is in danger, your job is to use that implement to create pain, confusion, blindness, and fear so that you can extract yourself from the situation. So those are the two things that I'm going to recommend most to you. And I also just say, start thinking about other simple things that you know can be improvised. It's pretty easy to take a piece of a dog chain and put your keys on it, and you've got a pretty good flailing weapon there. Uh, let me talk a little bit about martial arts. Um, you take these little 120-pound girls, you put them into martial arts classes, it gets them into great shape. It does make them better able to defend themselves. 
Uh, I'm not saying there's no value in it, but I'm saying most of it, unless you study it for years and really become a practitioner and really, you know, get into sparring matches and things like that and really get physical and aggressive with it, um, it, it doesn't do you much good when a 200 pound man grabs you by the neck. And there's so much bullshit about it. I'm going to be straight with you on it. Going and take a woman's self-defense course three nights a week for for four months, you're probably not that much better off than before you started. It's more important that you learn to like follow Frank Sharp's you know prime directive, so to speak. When I had him on here, we don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people. That's the first one. And number two is just strong situational awareness. If you think that an area is a place that you really shouldn't go, don't go there. There's a reason you get that feeling in your stomach. You get that feeling in your gut like, I, I, I shouldn't do this. My wife, years and years before I met her, they had a point where her and her first husband were going to park a truck. And she told them, I don't feel good about this. Don't park here. Of course, being an obstinate man, he parked it there. And they were in the store for not very long. And they came out. Somebody stole their truck. That gut instinct is real. So... You, your partner, and everybody else listening today, when you feel like I shouldn't leave this vehicle here, I shouldn't get out of my car here, I should go somewhere else, this is not a place I should be walking alone, whatever that is, if you trust that, it'll stop 99% of the problems before they ever occur. And I am going to say this for all the people that are not in your situation, when it comes to self-defense, yes, I always think there should be a non-lethal means. And again, my two favorite things, Kubaton, Pepper spray. And I carry pepper spray everywhere I go. It's on my keychain. Alright? But there is no nothing better when it comes down to it than a firearm. So if you can make that happen, make that happen and get the training. That's the best I can do for you with that one. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Tom from Roanoke, Virginia. Got a quick question for you. I've got a Bushmaster AR and while it's an alright rifle, it's nothing I would consider heavy duty or reliable when push comes to shove, I'm in the process of building another AR. I've selected the top half. Um, I'm concerned about the parts of the lower parts kit. There's different manufacturers, DPMS, Bushmaster, so on and so forth. Is it worth putting the extra money into a, a really good trigger? Or am I, it's not going to be a varmint rifle, it's pretty much a self-defense rifle. Am I good enough with a standard military spec parts and while what's available commercially isn't necessarily um, military spec is that good enough in your opinion thanks a lot I appreciate what you do with your show um, I mean let's start out a little bit with the, the mentality here of if it doesn't come push comes to shove I'm not saying you are, but I just for for everybody out there, I want to say that if you are setting up yourself with your AR, or your AK, or your M1, or or any of these uh, these these rifles with the, the main battle rifle concept, and you're thinking at any point in time that when the apocalypse comes, we're going to be all banded together fighting a resistance movement, a la patriots, the coming collapse, or anything like that. Please get out of that frame of mind because that is not how modern battlefields work. Uh, and it's certainly not how they're ever, 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 ever going to work here in America. I, I hate to say that, and I'm not putting the collar down, but I just know the mentality's out there, and I want to make sure that I'm continuously squashing it. Yes, uh, our firearms freedom is part of our independence and our liberty and ensuring the same, but it's more about being able to defend ourselves so that we don't rely on government than being able to overthrow a government that is a complete and utter nonsense. And if you don't believe it, phone up the folks in uh, Iraq that have gotten a close look at the front end of an impending JDAM. Oh, that's right. They can't take your call. They've gone off to Allah's waiting room. Um, just just want to keep keep that in, in perspective. So on the trigger group, the only reason I see to really get fancy with your trigger group is if you are worried about you know your uh, your, your accuracy and being you know a very very sharp shooting rifle. Um, I also have to tell you this. I am not an expert in ARs and building ARs, and it's not something I spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about. What I can tell you, though, is with the lower, I'm less concerned than the upper. Your main points that you really want to get into with your AR to make sure you have reliable functionality is the bolt and the bolt carrier and the, and the pins and how they're put in and, and the bolt face. Those are the components that are kind of the action items there. Uh, your trigger group, if you went with pure mil spec, I think it would just be fine. I really do. But you're going to get better 
um, information on the specifics of building an AR over at the forum at AR15.com than you're ever going to get from me because basically I run my ARs pretty much stock uh, the way that I think they were designed to run, and I think that's why I don't have a lot of problems. Uh, I think that we've gotten to a world where we accessorize the accessories, and I know that's not what you're doing here. You're talking about actually just building the, building the, 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 uh, the rifle with the upper and the lower, and you save some, some taxes by doing that and things like that. And I'm all for it. I think it's cool. And again, I don't want what I said at the beginning to make you think that I'm putting you down at all. But I, I do want to continuously send this message. We practice our Second Amendment rights primarily so that if someone comes and tries to take what we have, instead of waiting for help, we can keep what we have until help gets there. We, we, the, the, if there is anybody out there right now that thinks you're going to run up into the mountains of Idaho and fight off the New World Order, I, I'm going to make a suggestion for you that you might be surprised about. You might want to find another place to get your information about survivalism from because you're listening to the wrong program because that's not what we do here because we live in the world of reality. And uh, I'm not saying that there might not ever be a time where, let's say, we have to take up arms in defense of our nation. I'm saying the way that it plays out in these fantasies is actually very detrimental to your long-term survival, your long-term well-being, and frankly, your long-term mental health. Again, I'm not picking on the collar. I just picked up a little bit of that there and that. And I think what he actually means is that, you know, I'm going to use this This is a self-defense weapon for the home exactly the way that we do talk about here. And if it ever comes down to it, I want the damn thing to function and work and not be jammed up. Um, and, and if I could tell you the truth, if, you, if that's what your thoughts are, a good shotgun is a hell of a self-defense weapon for the home. I don't have anything against ARs for it. I, I know that uh, you know they actually are pretty decent about not over-penetrating walls because the bullets are so frangible and what have you. Um, but when it comes down to it, there is nothing more reliable and effective than a good old solid shotgun. And uh, you don't get a lot of jams with a pump. And uh, you don't need a real ultra-high capacity there either. Um, now, again, I'm not putting down the ARs. I've given you my advice on that. But I'm going to actually tell you that uh, I would go over to the the, the uh, build your own uh, board on ar15.com, and I would pose your question there, and you're probably going to get a better better answer than you will from me on this particular subject, uh, because you're going to get a lot more from me about how to accurize a a bolt action rifle than you are about tuning up a uh, an AR, because it's just what I like to do more. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is Chip, um, MSD member up in Northern Nevada. Uh, we're kind of up here in the high and dry country, and uh, you don't mention us a whole lot, um, but a lot of us listeners have altitude issues and, you know, short growing seasons and humidity challenges, and I was wondering if you could maybe uh, address some of the needs or, or, you know, items that we might grow that might uh, be the most beneficial in our climate. Uh, or if you, if you don't know, uh, if you could bring somebody online who might be uh, an expert in our sort of area where we have growing time, growing uh, you know calendars that are less than ninety days. Thanks. Well, thanks for the call, and it's a good question. And let me do the best I can for you. But let me say something very much first with uh, with everybody that ever calls in from any place that ever lives in their particular climate always thinks that everybody in every other climate has it better. The people from Florida call in and go, oh, my soil's all sand and it rains here all the time and it's so hot. And then a person sitting up in Montana goes, man, I would love to be able to, to just amend sandy soil with compost and like not have stuff freeze to death and, and have rain. So I want you to understand that wherever you live, there are certain things about your climate that are ideal to certain types of crops. And a lot of times it's about finding the things that grow well there. And you can rest assured that somebody somewhere is going, man, I wish I could grow what they can grow up there. So uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the next thing is anything you can do to extend your season with the cold is a great thing. So, I mean, the first thing I'm going to recommend is a greenhouse. I, I really am. I have some other thoughts on how to improve greenhouses. I'm going to say for another call here that's coming up in just a bit. Uh, but I think a greenhouse goes a long way to solving two of your problems, the cold weather and the water usage. The thing about a greenhouse is you, you, you have to water and irrigate the plants inside the greenhouse, yes, but you have to do it so less frequently. 
You really do. I mean, you don't have to spend as much time and you don't have to use as much water because you've created a microclimate that's very humid because there's no place in you know, the moisture as, as it evaporates. It actually collects on the greenhouse. And a lot of times you go out of greenhouse in the morning and uh, it'll just be full of condensation on the inside. You can give it a good shake and it basically rains right back down on your plants. So uh, that's something I'm going to definitely recommend. And then start looking into what are people doing around you that works. Find garden clubs in your area. You'll be surprised. They're everywhere. Uh, if there were actual normal people instead of just scientists in Antarctica, there'd probably be a garden club there. Uh, what are they growing? How are they growing it? How is it working? Follow the example of the people around you because obviously I don't know how to grow uh, uh, things very well up in the uh, you know the, the northern Nevada area because I've never lived there or grown things there so somebody that has is going to be able to give you better advice on the dry stuff compost mulch compost mulch compost mulch I mean those are always the answer they always improve things good quality mulch and good quality compost improve the soil so that you get uh, a better uh, uh, retention of the moisture that you have. Uh, it's almost imperative that you look at using drip irrigation in your area. It makes so much sense to do that. Uh, swaling is always a great idea if you can pull it off so that the rain that you do get goes into the soil instead of across the soil and taking things away from you. So it, it, it sounds like a compound, but really the things that I tell everybody to do are the same things that you're needing to do. You just need to tune them to and plug them into your situation. You also need to look at what perennials grow well in your area or similar areas if they're not from your part of the world and other parts of the world that are just like you. Uh, have there. It's amazing what can happen when you get a tree established in a, even a very dry climate. Uh, that tree can go for, for a very, very long time without rain because it's got a root system now that's, you know, five or six meters deep. And uh, I'm also going to recommend that for your environment, you check out this new product that I found, and it's called Growasis and allows you to start bushes and trees from seed. And it's specifically designed to reforest the deserts. It looks like almost like a Tupperware-looking thing, and it's got this water reservoir in it and uh, this lid that, that tracks down, and it helps keep things warm, uh, and it helps keep things cool. So when it's too hot, it helps moderate the temperature one way. Too cold, it helps moderate temperatures the other way. You sit it on the ground. And by starting your, 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 your trees from seed or from very, very small seedlings and using this thing, it makes them put down massive root systems very, very quickly. It gives them enough water to, to, to get going, but not enough water to survive, and it makes them hunt for water. And there's, you can check out the website, there's whole things about how many bars of pressure that a seedling or a very, or started from seed tree, uh, exerts with its main taproot, then one that's kind of had to create a new one because it's been bound up in a pot. And I would think that you could probably use these for starting bushes and probably even some annual plants as well. Uh, so check them out, Growasis. And um, we're actually looking at trying to become a distributor for them. Don't wait on me if you can find another way to get a hold of them. Uh, and then the other thing is I think if you look at it, maybe it'll give you some ideas on how to fabricate something similar for your own use. Uh, but I think these guys are fascinating. I've been in touch with the CEO of the company. I'm going to try to get him on for an interview next month uh, once things settle down. So there's my advice on that one. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Noble in Colorado. Thank you for everything you do for us. I, I just love your program. I know brown rice won't store long because it turns rancid, but I thought if I cooked it and dehydrated it and stored it in carry cans with O2 absorbers, it would last longer. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks. Bye. Okay, I can't prove it, Noble, but I'm pretty sure that what you're trying to do is actually, if anything, going to reduce the storage life rather than extend it. Because what you're doing is taking something that's been perfectly dehydrated, rehydrating it, cooking it, and then dehydrating it a second time. And I can't see how that's going to give you a longer storage life. What you're effectively making there is brown minute rice. And uh, I would think that if, if there's any going to be any way that that's going to be advantageous for storage, you're going to be better off just buying brown minute rice than trying to create your own. Um, even if you think you're saving money, by the time you put all the inputs in as far as the energy usage, you're going to be back to square one or behind the eight ball on it. I do want to say this about brown rice, though. I, I've, I've heard that from so many people, you know, it doesn't store because it goes rancid because it's a higher oil count and everything like that. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I've had brown rice that's over a year old. It's been stored in no very, you know, no special way. I mean, just basically in the bag there or the box or the container that it came in. And yes, closed off from air, but no O2 absorbers, no anything. And I've had no problem with brown rice up to a year of age. 
So here's what I think you should do with your long-term storage of brown rice, folks. You should figure out how much do you use in a year and store that much and keep a one-year rotation going on your brown rice. And if you want really long-term storage and you want to bulk up the carbs and the calories with rice, go ahead and use white rice for that. And I also want you to think about it this way. Yes, there's a great compelling reason to use brown rice because it's got higher nutritional value uh, and things like that. But if you had a year's worth of white rice and a year's worth of brown rice and you ever came into hard times or a situation where we need to go back and rely on those long term, well, we actually can then take a little bit of white rice and cook it in with our brown rice and stretch it that way, get the whole, whole grain uh, advantage of the brown rice until we use up the brown rice and then rely just on the white rice and make the brown rice nutrition and the additional flavor from it last longer as we're using it from our stores. So I would stop trying to come up with the ultimate way to make brown rice last five years and just accept the fact that it doesn't. Be grateful that white rice can go way beyond that. Store our brown rice in an eat-what-you-store store where you, you, you eat fashion. Figure out what does my family use in one full year. Make that the amount that you keep on hand. And every time you bring, you, you take from that supply, bring a newest supply back in and, and put it into a rotational one year period. Uh, and I do think that if maybe you take the additional step of, uh, vacuum sealing it or at least putting it into, uh, airtight containers with O2 absorbers, you can easily stretch it to a year and a half. And I, I don't care what anybody says. Try it, eat it. You'll see it does work. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Rational Huster from the forum. Calling to, uh, get some thoughts from you about health savings accounts. I know you're a proponent of them. I've heard you mention that you have one yourself. And I see these as kind of key to not only solving our, our health care problems as a nation, but for individuals like myself that are trying to map out a future where we're less dependent on systems, or in this case, employers and group insurance plans. Now, I know, you know, I know how health savings accounts or HSAs work in general, but I'm wondering what kinds of things I need to consider or if you know of any resources as far as researching good plans. I'd like something, obviously, that's you know, it's going to have high deductible catastrophic coverage and then savings that we pay out of pocket for miscellaneous expenses, which is, you know, obviously there's good incentives there for people to take charge or take care of themselves to the best that they can, and then they've got that catastrophic coverage for when things happen that are outside of our control. But it's kind of an expensive proposition, but I know if you have an HSA in place, then suddenly you're not bound to the golden handcuffs of a group plan with your current employer. You can be more mobile, more portable, and uh, scale back hours and, and spend more time homesteading and prepping versus at the office paying for your insurance. So if you know of any good resources to kind of research this, I'd really appreciate that, as well as any other thoughts you might have. Thanks, Jack. Uh, let me first say that I am not a health insurance expert. I don't want to be a health insurance expert, and there's few things in the world that I hate more than dealing with any type of insurance, and of all the types of insurance that I might ever have to deal with in any way, shape, or form, health insurance is my least favorite of all. So I'm only going to be so much help to you here on this. Um, the way we selected what we're using is we got a good agent. My wife asked around and found somebody and, and brought, you know, and he gave us recommendations based on what we wanted. And here is the big thing. You have to tell an agent what it is you really want to do. Here's what I said. I don't want to go bankrupt from an illness, injury, or disease. That's what I want to protect myself from. So I want the, the, the best coverage I can get with a very high deductible married to an HSA. And he presented several and we had conversations. And I'm going to tell you, that is what you have to do to get it done right. You can't get a book. You can't get a research. It, it, it can't work that way because there's going to be different plans available based on your age, your sex, your marital status, your state. Uh, uh, there's so much bullshit in the health insurance world. You have to get something tailored to you. So the big thing to do 
is try to find an agent to talk to. And I think the best agents you're going to find are ones that generally work with businesses. They're going to be happy to write you an individual policy, and they're going to be better equipped to help you do things like set this up or even set one up to balance. Maybe your, maybe your employer provides health insurance in a lot of instances, but it sucks, and you need to, you need to kind of supplement that, and, and they can help you with things like that. On the HSA, let me tell you my thoughts on it. Number one, I think it's complete crap that they even have to exist in the first place. It only exists to control what we can deduct as a medical expense. Uh, the Ask Clown Obama decided that we were going to have much better health insurance, so they came up with Obamacare, and one of the things they did that totally screwed people was you can no longer deduct medical expenses from things that are not prescription. So you can't go buy Motrin and aspirin and ibuprofen and, and basic medical stuff anymore and deduct it as a medical expense. Thank you, Obamacare. That really helps us out a lot. So there's only certain qualified things that you can actually deduct. The way the HSA works for everybody out there is you put your own money into your own savings account, okay? And then they give you basically like a debit card, like a Visa debit card. And when you go pick your prescriptions up, uh, your insurance, if, unless you have other insurance, it doesn't cover a dime of it in a lot of instances. We have no, we don't get anything until we spend $7,000 in, in a policy year. Uh, per individual. That's how high our deductible is. So up until that point, if my wife goes down to pick up her prescription, she just hands the person the Visa card, and that's our own money. I want you to understand that. We're buying it with our own money, but that money went in there, and it's tax-deferred money. So at the end of the year, we add up all our contributions to the plan. Whether we spend the money or not, it comes out just kind of like making a, um, a, a contribution to a 401k or an IRA. Right Now here's the good part. At retirement age, if there's money in there, because we keep throwing some money in there to be prepared for a disaster on the, you know, on a medical emergency. So, and here's the thing: if once we get it up to seven grand, we can cover anything that happens, because they have to pay a hundred percent of everything else. That's the kind of plan we have. Once we get there, we're, we're, we're pretty much solid, and we can add some more if we want to. Maybe get it up to 14. So if something happened to both of us in the same year, we're completely covered. And every time we spend money on it, we just refund it back to that catastrophic level. Well, let's say we get to a point where Dorothy hits retirement age, or I hit retirement age, we decide we'd like some of that money, please. We can take that out just like any type of, of a deferred retirement account. So we can get our own money back if we don't spend it on ourselves. So you can cover yourself up to the point of Medicare if you wanted to, for instance, and then you Use it to supplement your retirement if there's anything left in it. That's why I like them. Um, I just think the whole thing is a freaking mess. I think insurance in, in the healthcare industry is a mess. I think the healthcare industry itself is a mess. And I think the reason we pay so much for our insurance is because insurance exists in the first place in its current form. I don't think there should be an insurance policy in existence. That if you go down to your doctor because your kid has a runny nose and he listens to his chest and his heart and his brings and goes, okay, yeah, he's got bronchitis or whatever and here's a prescription, I don't think there should be a health insurance plan in the world that covers one penny of that. I don't even think it should be legal. As, as anti-libertarian as that sounds because we just let the free market do what it wants. No, because that's what's created the mess that we're in. You know, and if, if that was the case, if there was no insurance for stuff like that, That would cost you like 25 bucks for the office visit, and in your prescription, it'd be like five dollars. Instead, people with insurance pay more than that, and the doctor gets less than that. And, and that's the world we're in. And my wife would tell you the same thing after being in the medical industry for over 20 years. So that's the best I can do for you. The big thing when you're you're getting your individual health uh, insurance set up is find a good agent that specializes in taking care of people like you. And make sure you clearly articulate to them what it is exactly that you want. And then if they come back to you and you go, that just doesn't meet my budget, start with, well, these are the things I'm willing to give up. Right? And if you do that, eventually they'll find the best thing that is available for you. And definitely find someone that's not working for an individual company. Find someone that can bring you plans from multiple providers, and that's going to get you the best answer there. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ed up here at Fort Lewis. Love your show. Listen to it every day, to and from work. Just one question. The other day when you mentioned that uh, Black Locust, you know, lasts forever as a uh, fence post and stuff like that, I got into looking at it thinking that it, it might actually be useful up here in the Northwest. And I found Honey Locust, and I was wondering, um, you know, I, I know there's like a debate as to whether or not they're a legume, but uh, either way, those seed pods that it produces are very... Uh, I am protein, and so I was wondering if throwing a couple of those out in the field would uh, 
would be an effective way to get your your livestock some more protein instead of uh, you know going with uh, grain or something like that. Thanks much. Uh, honey locusts are a great plant. They are a legume in that they fix nitrogen. So if you're looking for something to fix nitrogen, honey locusts will do it. Um, the little bean things that they drop, cattle love them. They are high in protein. They're very sweet. They'll certainly eat them. Um, it's a good wood. It's not uh, as, as durable as black locusts. It's not something you can make fence posts out of, stick them in the ground completely untreated, come back in 50 years, and the damn thing's still hard as a rock. But it's pretty dadgone good. It's better than most. Uh, it does share some of its uh, some of its cousins' uh, antifungal properties, and that's really the big thing that makes black locust so durable. Is it's it, it, like everything in there that's not solid wood is basically antifungal, and so, so so no fungus can grow on the wood or grow in the wood for a very long time until it dissipates. It has that longevity. That's generally the, what breaks our wood down unless we just put it into like you know uh, some other type of solution that would would do that it's fungal growth the fungus get in there the mycelium spread out a little net inside there and then they start to fruit out and that's when we look at the mushroom and it's not actually the fungus it's the fruit the fungus is in there in this huge little web it looks like a giant spider web crawling through there and that's slowly feeding on the log and that's how it breaks down so since it's antifungal properties in a black locust it holds off So you can do everything you said with honey locusts. Here's the problem with honey locusts. Um, those little beans go everywhere. They'll grow anywhere. Uh, they're very thorny. So what you're doing is you're planting a very potentially invasive tree uh, that has a very heavy ability to colonize. If you're running cattle, okay, um, not a lot of them are going to get a really good start. If you're heavily running your cattle in the area, if whenever you start to see little things perking up, they'll eat the damn things when they're first sprouting. Once they get up a bit, I mean, they're thorny as hell. They're not going to want to eat them. But if you put them in there when they're small enough, even the stuff that they won't eat, they'll trample it. So one of the things you can do is, let's say when you're feeding them hay, Uh, or something that you're, you know, you're bringing in for them, uh, wherever you have any place where these things are starting to kind of pop up, if you throw their feed there and bring them into the area so they trample and mash and gnash, uh, that'll help keep them in check. But I'm just going to tell you, um, give you an example. Uh, Paul Wheaton talked about this on the show about, you know, getting rid of the need for irrigation. Uh, there's some town in Australia that brought Bill Mollison in because it was dry and dreary and like a desert there. Uh, and, and now it's this green oasis, but it's also a green oasis full of honey locusts. He came in and brought in hybrid honey locusts that didn't have the thorns. And uh, nature found a way, just like they say in uh, Jurassic Park. Nature found a way. And as it began to reproduce, all of a sudden thorny ones showed back up. And uh, now that whole town loves and hates Mollison. They love him because their town's green and everything around them's desert. Uh, they hate him because they have all these thorny, evil trees everywhere. So that's the caution with honey locusts. Good call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Matt up in Michigan. I have another quick question for you. I just built a 20 by 40 greenhouse and um, am looking at building a rocket mass heater possibly to heat the greenhouse for Uh, trying to grow some warmer climated plants next winter. I know I'm late on this season. And uh, questions were popping up in my mind, like do plants need more heat for their roots, or is it the stems and leaves, et cetera, that, and the fruits that need the heat? I guess the main reason I'm asking the question is should I be focusing on heating the air with uh, more of a convection method, or should I be focused on heating the soil? And uh, if you had any thoughts or information on that, thanks. Well, if you just think about how plants that make it through winter um, come back in the spring, that are you know ones that freeze to the ground, that kind of answers the question for us, doesn't it? So what I'm talking about is there's a lot of places, like let's say Texas. Uh, Texas, you can grow a banana plant. You can't really grow a banana because the banana plant needs more than a year to produce bananas. So the plant gets big and huge and giant like this tree, and then we get that Texas winter, and it finally freezes, and it just dies. And it just dies to the ground. But next year, the, banana, the root system's now even bigger, and it grows even faster, grows even larger. you got banana plants going everywhere, all over the place. All these Texans think that they're living in the tropics, and then the winter comes and it dies again. So what does that tell us? That tells us the freezing temperatures 
are, are, are quick to kill the vegetative mass above the ground and much slower to kill the vegetative mass below the ground. And if you've ever been in a basement, uh, unheated or uncooled in the middle of a hot summer or a cold winter, you know why. The ground is a great thermal mass and a great insulator. So we, we don't need to be as concerned with the ground as we do with the surrounding air temperature to protect fragile plants because the ground is more stable. That said, if the ground gets cold enough and you have a plant with a root system where those roots freeze and the roots can't tolerate it and come back as a perennial or it goes beyond the threshold of what that plant can handle, you'll kill it and you'll kill it dead. All right, so occasionally, like, there are places where, like, we have some oleander that, you know, one side of the yard it never even dies, the other side of the yard it dies back. Well, this year, it pretty much killed it. Now, there's some little hopeful shoots coming back up from these oleanders, um, but basically, it got so cold, we got the ice storm this year during the Super Bowl for those five days of temperatures below 15 degrees and ice laying on the ground and all, that it killed the root mass. So it can happen, it's just less of something you need to protect. And the odds of it happening in a, a greenhouse running a rocket mass heater are, are you know next to nothing. That said, the simplest thing you can do with a rocket mass heater in a greenhouse is what's in Paul Wheaton's video. Instead of trying to build a big thermal mass, run your piping through the ground. Now with a rocket mass heater you have kind of a heat riser and that is going to create your convection heat. And you're going to have that for the damn thing to work. Then it's going to vent out of there. So it's basically it's a barrel with a barrel over top of it, and that's where your secondary combustion happens. It's so hot in there that the gas and the vapor from the initial burn recombusts the second time and burns a second time. And that's going to produce plenty of heat out into the airspace. That exhaust then, what you want to do is build yourself a nice big raised bed to plant in. And your tenderest plants, plant them in that bed straight in the ground. And maybe you have your shelves elsewhere or maybe other beds elsewhere inside your greenhouse structure where you plant other things. But your things that maybe you're most concerned about the root structures can go right into that thermal mass. The ground becomes the thermal mass. So you during your daytime periods, you have your sun warming your greenhouse, keeping everything alive. And then on the nights that it's going to be cold, you go out and you build a relatively small fire. I mean, you don't have to burn very much with this type of a system. That brings the temperature up in your greenhouse to a nice warm temperature, even after the sun's gone down. And it puts all that excess of heat into that bed that's inside the, the ground. And that ground becomes this huge thermal mass now. And it slowly releases that heat through the evening and gets you through till the morning and the sun comes back up and it takes over the job. So we're only using the rocket mass heater in most instances to get us through the evenings. Unless you live in a place where like the temperature during the day might be below zero or something like that. Or on some particular days where it's really gray and you get very little sun and it's below freezing, you may need to do some wood burning throughout your day. But if you take that approach, you should be able to pretty much grow anything anywhere. Uh, it's a brilliant approach. I, I really hope that Paul gets a video up soon of the completed project. It's something we're going to do here, and we'll certainly document it as we do it. I don't even need it that much, but I want one, and it's so simple to do, really, if you're going to build the greenhouse anyway. We're going to marry that with aquaponics. So you think about a greenhouse with an aquaponics system in with a thermal mass generation heat device like a rocket mass heater into an in-ground thermal mass, And between warming the water, between the solar convection, and between the rocket mass heater as a backup for those really cold nights, we should be able to grow vanilla orchids if we wanted to. I don't know that we will, but we should be able to. Anyway, great question. Thanks for asking it. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Thanks for the show. I hear a lot about, you know, plants on out your dead, especially now in these times. And um, just wondering what the significance of that is. I'm, I'm, I'm weighing the pros and cons of having a... Um, you know, money, using it by, you know, credit card and being in debt, getting things that I need in the process um, versus not being in debt and not getting the things I need. Um, I have a job, I'm working, but still it's, it's, it's not enough to, um, to get by. So I'm kind of, you know, playing the odds and um, being a bit of a risk taker and thinking that, well, you know, I can run up the credit cards, and, uh, you know, if I can't pay it in the future, you know, that's no big deal. I won't be the only one, and um, I'll deal with, you know, uh, going to, you know, I'll deal with it then. Maybe that's an irresponsible way of looking at it. But I just wanted to 
basically get the, I hear you and Raul saying, you know, get out of debt, get out of debt. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, why. Thank you. Well, the argument you're making is one many people have made to me, and it's never worked out any other way than me saying stop, stop talking and don't do it. Um, I don't mean to be abrupt or, 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 or crass with you, but honest to God, this concept of, well, I don't make enough to buy all the things that I need, so I'm going to put it up on debt, and if anything gets really bad and the economy crashes, well, I'll have what I need, and I won't be the only one, and, and like somehow you know, that's going to that's gonna play or work out for you. Trust me. If the economy begins to contract the way that I've been forecasting it, they are going to come after you bloodthirsty worse than any other time in history. They will take your home. They will, they will come after you. And you, you know, you're not going to charge enough on Visa to live for five years. So at some point, you're going to need to have income. You're going to need to have some level of stability. You're going to have to be able to participate in the economy. The problem that we have with this mentality that, you know, I'll just stay in debt and when it blows up, it blows up and screw them, they're not getting theirs and I'll keep what I have, is that we have this fantasy world that, again, I, I, I hate to beat up on, uh, on, uh, what's his name, uh, on James Rawls, uh, with his book Patriots because I don't think James Rawls believes the economic breakdown will look like Patriots. He wrote it as a fan fiction novel to get a whole bunch of stuff in it and make it entertaining and to be some, some, you know, some doomer porn, basically, okay? Um, cause when I've read his blog and he talks about economic collapse, he's very much in sync with what I think. More of a slow spiral than a, just a slam to the ground. And this concept that, you know, uh, it'll all just explode to the point where they can't collect it anyway is not going to happen. If you look at Argentina, the debt collectors still got their money. You know, if you look at the Soviet Union when it fell apart, the, the, the debt collectors still went after their money. They don't have it quite the same form we do, but you, you, it's not like you're going to get off the hook. You're not going to get out of jail out of free card. Now, as far as the pros and cons, if you don't have enough money to do what you need to do today, you're wrong. How do I mean that? What you need, what you need, keeps you alive. If you didn't have enough to get what you need today, by a very definition, tomorrow you would not be here anymore. Does that make sense? This is a conversation I had with my kid when he was 10 years old. He said, I need this new thing. No, you don't. Tomorrow you'll still be here without it. And as adults, we need to take that same discipline to our own level. Now, I know what you're saying. There's a lot of things that you want to get done in your life. There's a lot of redundancy that you want to set up. And to be able to do that you don't feel that you have enough income. And all I can say there is credit cards are not the answer. And the answer does exist. The answer is, is, is a second job. The answer is cutting your existing expenses. The answer is instead of taking two years, it's going to take you five. I don't know what your individual answer is, but I'm going to tell you, if you think you're going to get there with Visa and MasterCard, in the end, you're going to get hurt. And a lot of times people say, but, but it's all going to happen soon. They're going to come and I got to do it now. And, and that urgency is acting in fear. And if there's nothing else you've learned from me, when you act in fear, you screw up your life. Every single time you act in fear, you screw up your life. Unless it's good fear. Good fear is I'm standing in the road, minding my own business, looking at a bird in the tree, and I hear screeching tires and I look down the road and here comes a Corvette doing 100 miles an hour heading at me and my instinct of fear makes me jump off the road into the ditch and even though I get scratched up with brambles or whatever, I'm not dead, I'm alive. The fear has done its job. That's good fear. Any other type of fear always screws up your life and I can tell by the voice and I can tell by the rationalization You have a fear that time will run out before you get what you need done. And I'm not saying it's a completely irrational fear, but I'm saying it's probably a 90% irrational fear. The world is not going to end tomorrow. All of the fantasy stuff that, that, that we talk about that's good mental exercises is highly unlikely. The most likely thing that we have to worry about in the next year or two is a really prolonged recurrence double-dip recession. And it's going to look just like what we went through, only worse. And so, did people get their houses foreclosed and taken away? Yep. So what's the next one going to be? More of the same and worse. Did people lose jobs? Yes. And what does that mean? More of the same and worse. And let me put it to you this way. The, the, here's the big one again. But Jack, look, if I lose my job, I'll lose my credit. 
and then I'll you know but if I if I have the debt and I lose my job then I sell my debt but they can't get the stuff back you know if I buy mountain house food with it and put it away the visa people can't come get it all they can do is send me to collections and and yell at me and garnish wages which since I lost my job I don't have anymore fine okay let's say we're even going to take the credit card way out if we have to if you <laughs> stay out of debt and you lost your job and your credit card has no balance on it zero balance and you have a $25,000 limit, they don't know you lost your job and come take your credit card away. You could go out and buy stuff with it after you lost your job if you had to. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying that your argument falls apart because that is a better solution. Because that way you'll only do it if it absolutely is necessary, if it is becomes a need for your survival. But uh, there is no case for carrying consumer debt. There is no case for carrying uh, student loan debt any longer than you absolutely have to or borrowing any more than one penny more than you absolutely need to complete your education. There's no case for it. I don't care what anybody says, you're wrong, and it will eat your life away as a cancer. Uh, if you need more than that, go listen to one of my shows on debt. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Brian in Akron. I had a quick question for you about a little garden spot that I have. It's about 250 feet from the house, but about 20 feet from a big, large pond. And I didn't want to keep dragging a hose out to keep it watered. I thought maybe there might be some sort of pump apparatus that... I could run a hose into the pond and then pump some water into the garden and just leave the pump head down there by the garden. If you have any suggestions on something like that, let me know. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Um, here's the thing. Uh, if you don't like dragging the hose out, you're probably not going to like dragging the electrical cord out. And I'm not really aware of any kind of uh, manual pump that's going to work for something like that. If you have power out there... Um, basically, you just need a submersible pump, uh, and you look at your lift, so your lift over feet. So as long as the pump is rated to lift water, so let's say your pond is three feet lower than your garden, and you got a three-foot lift over enough feet, you can just get any submersible pump and toss it in there with a hose on it. And as long as you've got something to power it with, uh, that'll work just fine, and that would be great. An ideal situation would be that you actually have your, um, your your garden spot lower than your pond. It's not likely, but if you do, then you only need kind of enough lift in your pump to get up over the over the ridge line of the pond and just kind of keep a feeder going. So you can use a much more low wattage pump. Why do I even bring that up? Because this is the thing. The one thing you could do is set up you know an old car battery or an old deep cycle battery that's been reconditioned or something because you don't want to spend a lot of money on something like this. Uh, and, and set up a, you know, an inverter or get a DC pump and run that off of, you know, 60 watts or so of solar. And you could set that up. And, and since you're only going to use it when you water your garden, it's not like a continuous thing and it should be something relatively easy to do. The, the problem there is that most pumps, even, um, uh, you know, relatively low power as far as lift ratio and things like that and distances and things um, are, are relatively high draw. And if, and again, I'm thinking this is most likely the case, your garden is higher than your pond, that pump's got to lift the load the entire distance. So if it's, even, you know, if it's like up a hill and goes back down, uh, then you've only got to lift to the top of that hill. And the burden's not that heavy on the pump. The greater the lift, the more the burden, the more watts it's going to draw. And there's a, you know, most of these pumps aren't even going to do well running off a single fully charged car battery. You're going to need at least two car batteries because they have such a high draw um, with with the type of thing that you you may be trying to do. So I, I don't know if you're asking for some kind of a mechanical device, like something you could pump or something like that. I'm just not aware of that. Um, my Honest thought there is, though, if you've got the pond, if there's any way you can make this happen, you're probably better off because it's probably a better quality water for irrigation uh, than, than you know, if you're tied to the water system uh, using chlorinated, fluorinated water in, in your garden. So if there's any way you can pull it off, you'll want to do it. If anybody has any ideas for this one, let me know. If it was a spring with a little, little bit of pressure uh, behind it, we could use uh, a, a hydraulic, a, hyd a hydro-ram pump, they call it, which is uses a tiny bit of water pressure to, to move water uphill and actually works uh, uh, pretty damn good, but you know it's a still pond. So I, I don't know what else you could do other than rig something up with solar. If you have power down there, if there's some source of, uh, of electrical power down there, Any submersible pump rated to do the lift over the distance is going to work just fine for you. Uh, and you're only going 20 feet. 
The, see, the, the, the problem is that uh, you got to, li- you know, again, is it 20 feet of, of pure uphill? Or is it a very gradual slope? Does it come back down? You know, is it like 10 feet with a one-foot rise and then a one-foot fall and are basically on the same level? All of these factor into how much work the pump has to do for you. So that's the kind of thing you'll have to look at. I'm sorry I can't give you a better one on that, but it's uh, it's really hard to know. Uh, again, anybody that's done something similar, let me know. If you were setting this up from the beginning or if you go to put a new garden in at some point, if it's a relatively small pond um, that you can get access to, you can drain, you can refill, things like that, one of the great ideas, easy things to do is you put a capped pipe in through the, seal, the sealed floor of your pond and out the back side of the dam. And uh, at any point you want to, you can actually open that and draw water out and use gravity to feed. But if you were in that situation, you probably would have come to that conclusion on your own. But uh, maybe in the future, maybe there's a way you can use gravity to your advantage by planting down from the pond. The problem is that most people put ponds in where? In the lowest area of their property because you get the greatest amount of water catch, the greatest amount of water shed. Right? So it seems to make sense. What a permaculturist will tell you to do is your pond should go in the highest part of your land that you can get to hold water as your key point dam. And all overflow from there should go down. And if you can put in multiple ponds, I know you might buy the place that already has a pond. And trust me, if I if I had the opportunity to, I'd be happy to buy a place with a pond in existence. And if it's a low ground, so be it. Just trying to get you and other people thinking about with construction, where you have control over these things, to start thinking a little bit differently and get those ponds up on higher ground because now gravity is your friend. There's a saying among per- permaculturists, you can't move water uphill for free but you can move it downhill anywhere you want it to go at no cost. Just a thought. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Dan from Las Vegas. I had a great idea for people to help save money. What I do is when I purchased my houses, um, I've always started a three-ring binder. In those binders, I keep receipts to all of my purchases, all of my manuals for all of my uh, appliances and so on. And since most of those things have guarantees on them and warranties, it makes it really easy to return them, have them serviced, and people honor the warranties. In fact, um, I just had saved a bunch of money on trees that had a one-year warranty from one of the local you know, big box stores. Um, and I got new ones that actually survived to replace those bad ones. We recently sold a house a few years back, and we had that folder, minus any personal information and account information on it, available to the people buying the house. It made our house very attractive. Um, and let them know that we, their house, the house was well taken care of and helped sell the house. I can't emphasize enough for people to get involved in uh, getting a three-ring binder with little folders in there and keeping every receipt, every owner's manual to everything you buy for your house. It's going to save you a lot of money, keep everything organized in one place, and you're really going to uh, use it and benefit from it. Have a great day. I think it's a great tip, and I wish I had the organization that I'd always could say that I'd been doing the same thing. I have a feeling my wife will probably be doing that in the future because it does make a lot of sense to just keep all of that type of thing in one place and one location. I think we've been pretty good about keeping it for like major appliances and things like that. And she's also really good about saving every single receipt so we can take the sales tax deduction when we do our income taxes. So that helps as well. But a binder and it all going to one place makes a lot of sense. Um, it sounds similar to something an agent of ours did when we sold her house in Pennsylvania, except she didn't do it with that stuff. She did it with things like, where's the nearest store that has this? She had put this book together uh, that was just, you know, basically sold the location. And I think if you took those two things together, that might be a real advantage in the competitive real estate market that we're in. So great tip there. But I, I, I think you forgot to do something there uh, uh, with your call. Maybe you had a question. Let's see. Hey, Jack, this is Dan from Las Vegas. I totally forgot my question part. I was too busy giving everyone a good idea to save some money with those binders. Um, my question was, uh, we purchased a, a vacation-slash-bug-out location home um, back in Pennsylvania, and it's a beautiful home. We're fixing it up. It needs a lot of work. But um, in the basement is a bomb shelter. No kidding. Old-fashioned 50s bomb shelter. problem is its height is only about, um, it's about five and a half feet. And so everyone's stooped over or, you know, worrying about banging their heads. It's a, it's a concrete floor underneath it. And on top, it is I-beam, steel I-beam, 16 on centers. Just, you know, just this room is a mammoth, strong brick, you know, 
concrete block building. Um, I was wondering what we could use the space for or somehow maximize it since we're only looking at about six foot six and the room's probably 24 by 16. Um, and I know the obvious is we could use it for, um, for some storage or, um, you know, for food and et or pantry. But I wonder if you had any other ideas or somehow we can uh, maximize the space. Thank you. I mean, I don't know. I mean, dude, it, I mean, you've given your, yourself the best answer is to use it for storage. Um, I, I can't think of anything better to do with it than store stuff down there. You've probably got a great stable temperature, so any type of foodstuffs or anything like that, I mean, it, it's a great large space. I would make sure that you don't store stuff in it to the point where you couldn't use it as its intended purpose. The odds that we're going to need a bomb shelter anytime soon are not that great, but... If you do, it's there and you got it and you're better off than most. So I'd make sure there's still space, you know, reasonable space down there to be accessible if you needed to put the family down there or something. If you lived in the South, I'd say count your blessings for having, you know, a great tornado storm shelter. Uh, you're just not likely in, in, in Pennsylvania to need a tornado shelter. Occasionally there's a tornado somewhere in the flat parts of Pennsylvania or what have you. But I can tell you that when we lived up there, uh, and the storms came in, the last thing I was worried about was a tornado. About the only thing I was concerned about with the thunderstorms in Pennsylvania, uh, was maybe some hail damage to the garden or to the car. So I don't think you need it for that. So it's a storage facility, and be grateful for it. I can give you one Pennsylvania coal miner tip, though, uh, for uh, for not bumping your head there. When I was a kid, my dad had this uh, bootleg coal hole, and if you don't know what that means, you can look up bootleg coal mining and find out. And, uh, you know, he's in there, and he never wore a helmet. And I always said, you know, Dad, why don't you wear a helmet? He said, look, he said, uh, it's a shaft mine with a, with a slab top. It's not going to have a peace fall. And, you know, just kind of like your bomb shelter, the hole's only about five and a half foot high in most places anyway. If something comes down, it's not like it's going to come down and bounce off your head. If something comes down, it's the whole mountain. It's going to crush you like a grape, and you're dead anyway. So don't worry about it, you know. But he was also wear he always wear a cap. So one day I went up there to help him out with some stuff he was doing, and, and I put, you know, he tells me you need to wear your cap. And I'm like, well, a cap's not going to help me if something falls on my head. And the same reason you don't wear a helmet. And he, instead of explaining anything, he just says, all right, whatever. So we go in there. I'm in there for about five minutes. And uh, I, I stand up too quick in one spot and smack, man, bust my head on a solid rock. And I'm, you trust me, it's the top of a mountaintop that you're boring a hole into. It ain't going nowhere. Your head's going down. The, the rock's not going up. And I busted my head, you know. And I said, man, I don't want to do that again. So about a minute later, I did it again. And he said, you know what, do me a favor, go put your cap on. So I went back out to the truck and dug, dug an old cap out and put it on my head. I came back in there. And how does the cap protect you? As you're just about to hit that surface, you feel the cap make the contact and you stop going upward and you don't use those great big gluteus maximus muscles to drive your head into the roof. So if you just make a habit of wearing a cap down there, you're less likely to hit one of them I-beams. I know that's not really what you called in for, but man, that's the only advice I can give you there. I don't know what else you would do with a bomb shelter other than use it as a bomb shelter slash storage uh, area. I guess you could turn it into a really cool man cave if you wanted to. You're going to have to stoop over, but, you know, you can kind of do the Tim Taylor, <laughs> you know, the caveman thing with that. But, man, that's what I would do. I would just, I would be so grateful if one just would magically appear under our, our property up here. And, and that's what I would use it for, a storage facility. And with that, folks, we are going to wrap up today. I do appreciate all your calls. Again, if you're going to call in, please try to do me a favor. Please try to find a quiet location when you make your call. Please speak loud. Loudly into the phone. Please speak loud enough that you think you're too loud. It is so easy to bring your volume down and it is so difficult to bring your volume up. When I bring you up, I magnify all the noise, the background noise, all the, all the static, everything else. Uh, when I bring you down, I bring the static and the background noise. So loud, please speak into the phone directly. Don't turn your head away from the phone like I'm turning my head away from the microphone and then back to the phone like that. Don't do that. Speak. It's only two minutes. Speak into the phone the entire time. Be clear. Be concise. Get your question out up front. 
Give me your details uh, after that. We'll try to get you on the air again. If you want to be on a show like this, it's 866-65-THINK. This wraps up the first week up at the Hot Springs, Arkansas location. Uh, next week, we will be back down in Arlington. we got to have carpet put in, so I will be coming to you from Arlington on the laptop, sitting in the kitchen again for the, in the next week, and we'll try to be back up here somewhere around the end of that week or the week following, and hopefully that'll be the last one, and we'll be completely unplugged from that location. There'll be a for sale sign in the front yard, and we'll be permanently up here at the Ant Hill TSPN or whatever it is we're going to call it. Again, folks, thank you guys all so much for all the contributions you've made to the show today and other days as well. Thanks for listening to it. Thanks for sharing it with others. I appreciate every single one of you. You're like a great big family. Uh, many of you guys I've never met, but yet I do know who you are. And uh, again, I appreciate that. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.